You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your kindness to us. Your mercies are new and rich every morning. And we ask that in your mercies you would meet us um, in this hour together, that you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive what it is that you are doing in your word, that you would help the teacher who's here to teach and those who are here to listen, that you would, that Lord, you would help us to sense what a, a strange and bizarre book like Esther is doing in your word and uh, to give us some, some sense of what you would have us um, to learn from it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, come on in, friends. There's seats around. Um, Esther is a, uh, it's a remarkable story. And I'm going to actually talk through the story a little bit this morning. It's going to get a little elementary school, Sunday school moment here to kind of just work through the story. Um, it's worth retelling. But, um, uh, but before I kind of dive into that, a couple of preliminary remarks. A, a, a rabbi began his teaching on the book of Esther this way. I, I discovered this. I can't even remember where I discovered this. But he, he began his teaching on the book this way. Um, Adolf Hitler, said the rabbi, was having his fortune read. I see, said the teller, gazing into the crystal ball, that you will die on a Jewish holiday. Which one, the Fuhrer asked in alarm. It doesn't matter, she answered. Whatever day you die will be a Jewish holiday. <laughs> so the rabbi continued, if you get this joke, then you will have a sense of what the book of Esther is all about. All right. um, I also wanted to just take a second before we sort of dive in to, um, to think about the way, the, the, the placement of the book of Esther in the book of the writings. And I'm not sure I really have had, and I still don't have my mind around it, but it, it's, it startled me this week. Now, of course, in our English Bibles, Esther comes right after Ezra, these history books. So you have uh, Kings and then Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? That's the last of these so-called history books in our English Bibles. Then we turn the page and we're, we're into um, uh, uh, Job and the wisdom books and, and the poetry books. Um, and, and the, and the Hebrew canon, at least from the time of the early rabbinic tradition post-70 A.D., Again, you have these five um, small books that all fit onto one scroll, and that's why the, that, that scroll is called the Megalote. Okay, so it's a scroll beginning with Ruth and, and ending with Esther. Now, isn't that fascinating? I'm going to come back to this at the end of our lesson because it's one of the takeaway points that I want you to, you to have. But, but isn't it interesting when you look at the structure of these five books that are on this single scroll, that you have Ruth at the beginning, right after Proverbs, and you have Esther, these two women that stand as the book ends on the whole of the book, and, and they, they both emerge as examples, um, concrete um, moments of lady wisdom actually working herself out for the sake of the Jewish people. It's remarkable, right? So Ruth, remember Ruth was in, in Ruth chapter 3 described as a, a, a chayil isha, a, a virtuous woman. And we know that the virtuous woman comes right out of Proverbs chapter 31. So here you have Ruth who is a virtuous woman. And then at the end of the book, you have, or the, the megalote, you have Esther 
who now arises within what, what is a defining moment for the Jews across the whole of the Persian Empire. And she, she becomes an embodiment of lady wisdom. And that, that's, that, just to kind of round all of this out, wisdom as a term in Hebrew is hachma, which, which is a feminine noun. So wisdom's understood in, in a feminine form. There's, there's lots of things about it. these. These women show up and they save the day, I think is, is the idea that, that you have here. So if you think about um, Esther and Ruth functioning as bookends on the megalote, um, describing for us and narrating for us what wisdom looks like in the fear of the Lord, then when you begin to move into the megalote, think about this structure. You have Song of Solomon as book two, and you have... Um, Lamentations as book four. So you have the highest of praise and song and exaltation, transcendence. And then you have Lamentations, which is um, the difficulty of, of human suffering writ large. So I mean, it's as, it's as bad as it gets in the book of Lamentations. So lament, at least from a human perspective, Lamentations and Song of Solomon don't fit with one another. I mean, these two do not, this is oil and water. It's yin and yang. These are, these are two polar opposites. And yet here they are couched in between Lady Wisdom. And then when you, when you move to the center of the megalote, this, this one scroll that holds these five books that are all linked to a particular Jewish tradition or, or Jewish festival day, there's Ecclesiastes right in the middle. It's, it's kind of a, a remarkable structure. There's a lot of thought an intention that I think you find within that particular structure with Ecclesiastes raising... Now think about Ecclesiastes looking to the left and the right. Ecclesiastes looks to the left, maybe whatever way it's supposed to be spatially, but looks to the left and there's Song of Solomon and all of the pleasure and the joy of human existence. Using, of course, the, the, the erotic imagery there to, to give you a sense of that. So there's, there's Song of Solomon, the highest of transcendence. And here is Lamentations with the lowest of suffering and despair. Both of these fully human. That Kohelet, the preacher, helps you navigate. Helps you think through how one navigates through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Leaving you with that famous Hevel Hevelim. Vanity of vanities. Life is fleeting. It's not graspable. There is a joy in life and there is a suffering in life. And as a human being, you can't transcend those two. You live into the dynamic and the reality of the joys and the sufferings, knowing that they both tend to come together um, and, and neither one of them define human existence in its totality. It's kind of a remarkable thing. So where are we left with Ecclesiastes? We're left with enjoying the good life that God has given you and fearing Him ordering the entirety of your existence to him, and then moving back out to Esther and Ruth, letting us know what wisdom actually looks like as we navigate through this world. So there, there's something real. I just think these five books are special, right? The, the, the way in which they're structured, the way in which they're ordered, um, there's something rather remarkable about them. And of course, you know this about the book of Esther. Esther's a problem. Um, and has been a problem for a long time. Rabbis debated whether or not the book of Esther should even be in the canon. So there, there were debates, uh, and this was the technical term that the rabbis would use, um, th th does this book uh, solely the hands, or does it make, or does one have to cleanse themselves to, to, um, to actually touch this book? Is it canonical? 
And, and that was the debate about the book of Esther. Anybody remember why Esther is problematic? No mention of God's name in there. That's number one. Um, so, and there are people who will describe the book of Esther as if it's a, it's a secular book. Not, it, it's not. But, but you'll have people who will make an argument for it being a secular book. And, and there's also, you know, there's, there's troubling features to the book of Esther as well. We're, we're going to come to this as we go through the story. But there's some features of the book that cause us pause. Um, as well, moral pause, just to be honest with you, as you read through the book and kind of put two and two together, like, uh, that, that's, let's flip the page and keep moving on. Um, so Esther is a, is a fascinating book for, in the fact that it's actually in our canon. And yet here it is, um, alive and well, still breathing, leaving with us, I think, some pretty big um, theological takeaways about the goodness and the care of God to preserve and protect His people in the in the most dire of human circumstances. So th- this is this is God working in His providence and His ordering of human affairs and creaturely events and in, 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 in the in the mystery of His providence. It's not before our eyes. It's, we can't really put all the pieces together in the moment, but we know that God is orchestrating human events toward his own end for the sake of preserving and protecting his people. So before we, um, I've got like four or five things I want you to walk away with today, but can we tell the story? I mean, it's so good. I mean, there's some of these small little stories and the, and the writings are just written. Ruth, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Ruth is a gem of a narrative. It is written so well. Um, there's a reason why, as a, someone that teaches Hebrew, that I, that I have my students read Ruth first. I'm like, I'm going to win them with that. Because they're going to start to see some of the intricacies of the play on words and language. And they're like, I, I, whatever that is, I worked, I worked a whole year of my life to learn some Hebrew and I want more of that. So it's the kind of, that's the carrot that I put out in front of my students. So Ruth is, Ruth is fantastic. And Esther is too. And it's not a short book. I, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the story that most of you already know, but it's worth reading again. I, I even sat down this morning, uh, you know, a cup of coffee and said, I'm just going to, Let's go left to right here. I'm going to read this whole book real fast and get another kind of go through it. And it's there are details in here that are really fun. I'll, I hopefully will point a few of them out as we go along. So what's the, what's the setting? We're now on the far Babylon has fallen. Um, the Persians come onto the scene. Uh, King Cyrus, for example, is the one that overthrew the Babylonians. We're talking here late um, fifth century, moving into the fourth century uh, BC. Um, the, and, and this is it's from, from the standpoint of the Bible, the exile to the Babylonians is really a kind of before and after moment. It, it becomes a, a, a historical moment by which uh, history before and after is plotted. Um, so the exile with the Babylonians is, is a huge deal in the history of Israel. Down come the walls, down comes the temple. Nebuchadnezzar brought the, the, sort of the brute tyranny of his force and destroyed the infrastructure of Zion. So it's, it, it would be, for us, it would be like seeing um, the capital, a dome, implode. And, and that, that, just the symbolism of that would be very hard for Americans to process. To have the temple and the palace and the walls destroyed, this is, their world was now turned upside down. Um, but from the standpoint of human history, outside of the Bible, um, Babylon's kind of a blip on the screen. I mean, the Neo-Assyrians, 200 plus years, 
an empire that stretched across the known world of the ancient Near East. Um, I mean, an incredible empire. The Neo-Babylonians, 70 years, right? I mean, think about that from the standpoint of human history. That's, that's nothing. Um, some of you remember 70 years ago, right? Uh, so, I mean, this is, this, this is here, here, they're here and they're gone. But the Persians, oh, now, now we're talking about another serious empire. Um, some of you may remember from college being forced to read Herodotus's histories or something like that. That gives you this history of, uh, and we get, get a lot of information, by the way, from Herodotus about the Persians and about Darius and his son Xerxes or Artaxerxes, the one that we're going to meet here in this book. So we're, we're in the period of the Persian Empire and Persian rule spread throughout the land. It's, and it's, and it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable moment in time. And of course, you know that once Cyrus, allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland. And that was, that was the foreign policy of the Persians that was different than the Babylonians and the Assyrians. For the Babylonians and the, the Assyrians, it was complete cultural immersion for whoever they conquered. So if you were conquered as an Israelite or an Egyptian or, or, um, or, or someone from Aram or Edom, they were going to make you into Assyrians. You're gonna be, you were going to be a part of Assyrian culture. Same with Babylon. That's why uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all have different names because they've been um, enculturated into the, into the world of Babylon. That was not the policy of Persia. It was part of their strength, frankly is they allowed people to go back into their lands and to and sort of embrace the culture and the religion of their place, and they were encouraged to do so. So once the Jews were allowed to go back to the land, some of you may remember this thing that, that David Fleming and I did together in the book of Nehemiah. Once they were allowed to go back to the land, only about 50,000 um, Israelites went back. Many stayed in Babylon. Some were eventually even moved into the area of Susa, which is the capital. This is where we are here in the Persian Empire. So the Jews were still in some sort of diaspora, spread as they were throughout um, the ancient world. And here we find in the book of, um, of Esther a group of Jews that are planted in the heart of Susa, the capital city, at least during part of the season of the year, but we won't get into that. The capital of Persia, and, and here they are. And so, of course, the story is just a rich one, right? I mean, here is Artaxerxes, King Xerxes, um, the son of Darius. He's reigning in the middle part of, of, um, of, of, the, of, of the fourth century, um, or actually the fifth century, r- r- ruling in that part. And, um, and he throws a banquet. Oh, this is, I mean, you think that the hubris that you have here that's going on, showing off all of his wares, Doing the kind of thing, by the way, that Deuteronomy tells the kings of Israel to never do. Hezekiah punted at the end of his own ministry because he showed off to the Babylonians. And here you have Xerxes showing the power of the Persian Empire. And they're drinking um, all kinds of different wines from different go- different goblets for each wine. I mean, it's just a kind of remark. It would have been an amazing thing to see. And it says, and these were real parties. I mean, I, I, some, some of you are, I, I'm, I, I can only hang at a party for a little bit. Like my, my I don't, I'm not proud of this, but my social capital, um, you know, it's like two, three, four hours. And then it's like, this has been great. Um, I remember when I was at, a, at the church before I came here, uh, there was a group of men that I sort of served with in this church. And they would get together for these, you know, porch night um, bourbon drinking things. 
and uh, and it would start at eight at night or eight thirty, and I'd show up, and this is I think this is the only child in me, but I'd show up about eight thirty, and and we talk, and it was just I loved it, like about ten thirty, eleven. I'd book, Gentlemen, this was great, and then and then I'm like, you know, see ya, and then I'd see my buddy the next day or talk to him on the phone. I'd say, how how long did you guys hang out last night? Like till about two. What are you talking about? Till two. Like I don't, I don't But anyway, th- these parties here, seven days. How about that? And it says on the third day after the king was good and drunk, right? Then he calls Vashti, his queen, to come in to show off his wife in front of all of these eunuchs and and and, uh, and princes and and the, and the nobility of the land. And Vashti says, uh-uh, "I'm not doing that." And it's a great affront to King Xerxes. It's remarkable, right? And Xerxes is so angered that Vashti, the queen, would not come and do this that he, he's, he's troubled. But then, apparently, um, he sobers up the next day and asks, what should I do about this? And you got to love this. It's, it's, kind of, it's spicy here, right? The princes of the land say, you better do something with her. Because if it spreads throughout the land that wives can get away with this, all of our wives are going to start pulling this. That's exactly the logic, all right? So you better do something or we're going to have mass wife revolt in Persia, right? And, and, and he's like, okay, well, then I'll, I'll put her to the side. So that's what, and, he's, and you can tell the way the narrative is written that, that the king has regret about this. Um, but he's forced into a corner by his own anger and his actions, his, his unwisdom. So there, there's a sense in which the king himself, a kind of flat rube of a character in the book of, of Esther, um, is, is as well a kind of foil of the lack of wisdom in the face of Mordecai and Esther, who embody wisdom for what that looks like in, in the world. Um, and so Mordecai, who is... Um, a, a Jewish leader in the land, hears about this, and, and this is the part that's caused people pause, right? And again, this is we'll talk about this for a second. Um, he's going to hold a beauty contest. That's in effect what the, what the king is going to do. And the, all of the available virgins of the land will come to be with the king, and he will choose from one of these virgins to be his, to be his bride, his wife. And Mordecai seizes a moment, or sees a moment of of influence for his for his niece, um, who he is in effect the, the father of of Esther. And what does he do? He tells her to let's go. I mean, start eating, uh, get your best perfume, get oiled up, you know, whatever you need to do. And we're going to get you ready to go vi- visit the king. And she's with him for the night. I think that's the part. I mean, I just I don't want to be dishonest about this. That's the part that I think people kind of look at and go, "Ooh, I wish I wish that wasn't in there." And 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 me either. In other words, we we know that spending the night with the king of Persia, they they weren't playing Yahtzee. I think is the point. Um, and so this is a challenge. You know, we we get the challenge of this. It's also worth stepping back and remembering an interpretive principle of the Bible in general. The fact that you have things that happen in the narratives of the Bible that, that are offensive, and rightly so, doesn't mean that the Bible is giving its thumbs up to this. It's not a go and do likewise. Esther did this. You, you maybe should go and do this as well. That, that, that's, that's, not, that's not the case of what's, of what's happening. Um, so they have this moment together, right? And then And he chooses her. So the way in which this whole thing works out is you've got multiple streams in the narrative that are taking place. 
And these dreams in the narrative are going on where you have Mordecai and Esther. Now Esther's moved in to be the queen of the, of the, of the most powerful man in the land. And there are all of these underlings who have positions of power, but they're brokering. They're, they're, they're maneuvering. There's a lot of Machiavellian things that are going on for people to gain the upper hand on those that are their equals in some sense. And this is where Haman comes along. Now notice this if you see this in, Exodus, in Esther chapter 3 of verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Now that's interesting, right? Because this language here of Agagite, um, I think calls up a little uh, remembrance from earlier in the Bible. Uh, if you remember, King Agag of the Amalekites appears in 1 Samuel 15. And the king Saul, the first king of Israel, was told to destroy all of the Amalekites. And he didn't do it. This is one of the offenses that ended up causing eventually Saul's over, overthrow. God, God moving past Saul to move on to King David. He did not finish all of the of the Amalekites. And what was the what was the word that came from God to Saul? You didn't finish the Amalekites off like I told you to. And they are going to be here's the gentle paraphrase of this: a burr in the saddle of Israel forever because of this. And here we come to Esther, right? And here's Haman, the Agagite, most likely an Amalekite. And here's something that you might find interesting as well. Mordecai's lineage traces back to, to a King Saul. So here you have King Saul's, you know, great, great, great whatever grandson, and, the, and, an, and an Amalekite at it again. It's as if the word that was given to Saul all the way back into Samuel is now working itself out hundreds of years later where the implications of a previous generation, right, we see this throughout the Bible again and again, the implications of a previous generation are now, are now laid at the feet of a, of a later generation. So here's Mordecai having to deal with this Amalekite who shouldn't, if Saul would have obeyed God's word, even be around. I mean, I think that's the point. That's the unstated point of, I think, the narrative. So Haman is ambitious. He's ruthlessly ambitious. He's honored now by the king. And the king um, uh, uh, says that people need to kind of recognize you now, Haman, and your, and your authority. And um, Mordecai won't do it. Part of it is his pride. Part of it is his recognition that he doesn't bow before another man. Mordecai will not bow before Haman. And it drives him insane. Can't you sense it? I mean, this is like junior high locker room stuff. But it's the kind of junior high locker room stuff that grows up into adult problems that have massive implications for the well-being of others. And that's what we see happening right here. Mordecai will not bow. Haman is so incensed that it drives him in his fury to destroy Mordecai and all of his people. And he does so in this very backhanded way. Again, coming to this flat character, King Xerxes, who's not a wise leader, obviously from the narrative of Esther. And he says, there's a group of people and they don't honor you because they don't honor me. I'd like to do away with them. And the law of the Medes and the Persians were unreversible. You can reverse it. And so he gives him the right to, to destroy all of the Jews. So here you have mass genocide around the corner. And by the way, it wasn't just the Jews in Susa the capital, throughout the whole of the Persian Empire. 
Can you, I mean, again, the narrative doesn't fill in all these blanks, but can you imagine a king giving the green light to genocide and not really even knowing what he was signing? Again, that is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. That is the opposite of wisdom embodied uh, in the life of the kind of leaders that you would hope for. But this is him working from his power. Now the scene is set. And what happens? Well, you know, you, you, coach, you know the story. So Esther, I mean, Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, Esther, listen, um, we found out that Haman is going to destroy all of us on a certain day. You're going to have to go to the king. And I, I love this. It, it, um, Esther chapter 5, it's such a rich description because I think you see wisdom uh, working itself out in the ways in which we might expect courage to do so. Um, oh, I, I had that wrong. Let's see here. That's chapter 4. So um, Mordecai uh, persuades Esther to go into help. Um, and what does she say? She says, I, I can't just walk into the king unannounced. That, that's on jeopardy of my life. So again, this is where you have wisdom working itself out in the book. Now, it's not really clear what the best path is. This, this is the challenge of wisdom, right? I, we, I'm, I'm, I, we'll, we're going to park here for a second. This is the challenge of wisdom because you can see, and, and I'm, we're all kind of postmoderny people. I am, and you are. We could all make multiple arguments for multi, for the issues that are before us and try to work through them. The challenge is often not courage, is it for us? I mean, I'm sure that sometimes it's not always courage. The challenge is wisdom. I need to know what the right thing is to do. That's the challenge. Because can't you hear Esther saying, "Why in the world?" Would I go into the king and risk my life and lose the position of influence that I have with him? Why, why would we risk that? And of course, she then says, he says, this is probably the reason why you're here. This is it. This is your moment. And so what's Esther's response? It's Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And you don't have it written here, but it's implied. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does she do? She, she has courage. And I love this about Esther. The courage that she has, and some of you will remember this from your college days, is Aristotelian courage. In other words, it's not blind bravado. Aristotle says people that are sort of blind, blind bravado, beating their chest, running into the you know, into the into harm's way. Um, he, he, uh, Aristotle calls them they're idiots. Those are fools. Um, it's a person that recognizes the risks are real. Fear is called for. It makes sense to fear in this moment. And yet I will steel myself to do the right thing in this particular moment. Some of you may re recall the, I, mean, I mentioned this in, a pre in another lesson, the great French essayist Montagnier would talk about, wrote, wrote a great essay entitled the, the Inconstancy of Men. So that you'll find a man who's courageous on one day and not the next day. I mean, that's just, we, we all know that we live into these dynamics. We, we might want to think that we're stable creatures, but we're not. We're always moving. And here's Esther's moment. She recognizes that the, that the fear and the circumstances are, are serious and could end her life. And what does she do? I love this. Verse 14. Or 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants, we will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Isn't that remarkable? 
So go fast. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Go fast. Let's pray. Let's engage God on this, knowing that the providence of our moment, and I think about this, I know you all do as well, we never get to choose our moment. We don't get to choose our problems. Um, and, and God's hard providences at times, He chooses those for us. And Esther is living into a moment that I bet she's like, I didn't know I was signing up for this. But here she is. Okay, this is the moment for which I was born. This is the moment for which I've been made. God's providence in a, mo- in a kind of tyrannical way, unseen but moving, has brought me to this place. You pray. I'll pray too. We'll fast. And then if I perish, I perish. Um, as an illustration, as an aside, take, take a read someday of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. His second inaugural address sits right on top of this issue of providence. We don't really know necessarily what our moment is, and it's not always clear for us whose side God is on. But we're going to act in the integrity of our conscience in this moment and trust that God will sort it out. And that's what's happening here with Esther. God's going to sort this out. And so she goes. And, 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 and notice this too about wisdom. Here's Lady Wisdom. She prays. They fast. She steals herself with courage. And then, and I'll just put this on the sidewalk, she's smart. In other words, she doesn't just bust into the, into the king's chamber his throne room, and say, you're not going to believe what that guy's doing. She's shrewd. She analyzes the situation. She doesn't, if I can use one of our metaphors, lead with her chin. She thinks about what's the best way for me to get to the heart of of the most powerful man in the world, and she sets up a banquet for him. Isn't that great? I mean, to honor him, um, to put him at ease. So that she can have an entry point. And so she plays this kind of game with, with the, the king. And she says, hey, uh, come, up to, come to my, my, my palace tomorrow for a banquet. Just for you and for Haman. Right? And so they come over. And you think, reading the story, like she's just going to lay it out. This is it. Nope. She's like, what do you want? And all the land, I'll give it to you. He says that to his wife. What? I'll give you anything you want up to the half of the kingdom. And uh, she says, this is what I want. Can you come back tomorrow? And notice what happens in between. This is why Esther is just such a great little novella. What happens in between is that the king can't sleep. Is this great or what? He can't sleep. So he does what you do when you can't sleep. We, he didn't have a phone to read through, you know, Apple News endlessly or something like that. So he has the, the scribes come in, his eunuchs that serve him come in, and read him from the annals of his land and his conquests. And in the middle of all of that, it, he's reminded through the reading about this Jew named Mordecai, uh-oh, who uncovered a plot to assassinate him and saved the king's life. And, and Xerxes is like, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? And they're like, we never did anything to honor him. Well, we've got to fix that. This is part of the irony of the story. That's why it's so good. The next day, the king calls Haman and he says, hey, what would you do for somebody? Think about the hubris of Haman. What would you do for somebody that just did something amazingly courageous? And I, and I really want to honor this person. And what does Haman think? He thinks, oh, this is about me. Right? 
Um, I've, I've got a buddy of mine. This is a running joke between us all the way back to college. We'll be together, and, and he'll share some things, and he'll say something like, well, that's enough about me. Now, why don't you tell me what you think about me? Um, you know, it's, 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 this is Haman, right? I mean, the world revolves around him and his own ascendancy to power, however that's going to take place. And, uh, and of course, that's when the big, well, you know, pulled the curtain back moment is, it's not you, Haman, it's Mordecai. So do everything that you said. Go put him on a horse and walk him around and let everybody praise him. I mean, it, he's humiliated in this moment. And notice what Mordecai, I mean, what Haman's wife um, says to him. Um, verse, oh, chapter 7. Is that where it is? 14. Yes. Oh, is it 514? Oh, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Um, his wife, Zarephon's friend, said to him, have you have a pulse that I'm reaching to the sky? So this is about what he, he wants to kill Mordecai. He's so, he's so enraged about this. But his wife says to him, this is bad news for you. In other words, you've already, the king doesn't know that Mordecai is one of these people that you're going to have killed with the Jews. When he finds that out, it's bad news. And it sets you up where Haman goes into the second banquet with a lump in his throat. And here it is, right? So they're going through the banquet again. And now it all, this is, you know, in technical terms, the denouement. It, it unfolds. The tension resolves. The king says, what do you want at the second banquet? And she says, there's a man that's having me and all of my people exterminated. And the king is enraged. Who is this person? Right? And she says, it's that man right there. And the king is so angry at Haman that he walks out into the garden. I mean, you, you, you get this sense of these sort of ancient settings, right? The king's so angry that he's moving away from you. And he knows that that's it. And this is kind of hard to read, but it's all over this book. The, the Persian preferred form of execution was impalement. So he had set up impalement rods already outside of his house for Mordecai. Can you think about the horror of that and the evil of that? Haman hated Mordecai so much that he was going to have him impaled and then hung outside of his house so that everybody knew that this guy that wouldn't bow to me, this is what happened to him. And in the great sort of irony and reversal of the story, you know what happens. Um, Haman ends up being impaled on those very same gallows that he had for Mordecai and God saves um, uh, his people. The story continues to unfold. Um, and, and part of the challenge is it's already law that the Jews are going to be exterminated. And here you have again wisdom at work. Well, I can't undo that law, but send it throughout the whole land that Jews can defend themselves and we will come to their aid. And there were about 500 people in the city of Susa that were killed that day who tried to have the Jews um, exterminated in that moment and they were able to defend themselves. It's just a kind of remarkable story. It's a great one, right? So Esther, what, 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 what do we do with her? Here's a few things for you to take away from the book of Esther. Number one, God is committed to caring for his people. And that includes, by the way, most especially the people of Israel. Now, I realize that there's a lot of controversy within the Christian church about what do we do with Israel. Um, one, one thing that we cannot do, I don't think the Bible will allow us to do, is to speak of Israel's election as if that's simply a thing of the past. 
God is, and, and when you follow the story of the Jewish people throughout history, it is remarkable. A group of people greatly despised. You know, there's a significant rise of anti-Semitism in our own country right now. Um, anti-Semitism has been built. Our, our church is riddled with guilt in the face of anti-Semitism. Um, so we see these things through the history of Israel, and, and, and God is committed to his people. I don't know what, let me, let me rephrase this, I don't know what the mechanisms are um, in the future time for God and the people of Israel. But I do know that Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. And I believe that Paul means that in the strict terms of what he just said. God's calling of his people is without revocation, and there is a future hope for Israel. Um, so I think, you know, there's just some wisdom. Uh, it doesn't mean that Israel and their, and their political policies can't be criticized. Criticize away. I always joke when I hear people's... Oh, don't, don't, it's not funny, but I always kind of chuckle under my breath when people, um, you know, don't want you to be able to criticize Israel and their politics or whatever. I'm like, I, like the whole Old Testament's doing that. Um, so this is not about bringing judgments or thinking through geopolitical issues and complicate. I'm, I'm not trying to resolve any of that for you, but I'm just saying when it comes to the people of Israel, God's election of them is without revocation. That, that is, and, and, and the book of Esther leans pretty hard on that. Um, secondly, Esther, and I, I just think this is so fun. Esther is the Joseph in the writings. So think about this Joseph narrative that you have in the book of Genesis. Um, Joseph ends up as vice regent in the greatest land of that time, namely Egypt. It's, it's Joseph is the figure by which God preserves the whole known world and his people, the tw 12 tribes um, of, 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 of Israel. And, and you think about, and I, I wrestle with this a, a bit, you know, J the Joseph narrative in Genesis gets a lot of airtime. I mean, an enormous amount of airtime. Why so much airtime to Joseph? And part of the answer to that, I think, is in, in the narratives of Joseph, we have exhibit A of the Abrahamic promises already working themselves out in the book. Abraham, through you and your offspring, I will bless all the nations. And here we have Esther, who's now this Jewish orphan girl. It's like an Annie story. This beautiful Jewish orphan girl who's now queen in the greatest land in the world, the greatest uh, power in the world, using her position to preserve and protect her people. So I think you see this sort of fascinating link and description between Joseph um, and Esther. The, set, the third thing, and we've seen this already, is the fact that Esther is the embodiment of Lady Wisdom. Here, here we see Lady Wisdom sort of unfolded for us, working into the complexity of human existence. And, and can, I, I'm sure you feel this way. I, I, I do. Um, so many issues in the Christian life require wisdom when we really just want straightforward answers. I, I, I feel the burden of this. I mean, think about a Christian navigating political life in the United States of America right now. I want easy answers. The call is to the 
complicated nature of living into wisdom with the fear of the Lord driving all of my concerns, knowing that I'm primarily a citizen of heaven. That's my primary identity. But I'm also a citizen of this earthly city as well, called to care for it. Think about what Jeremiah said in, the, in his prophecy there to the, Babel, to the Jews in Babylon. And these were the people that destroyed them. Seek the welfare of that city. Seek the welfare of that city for your own peace and stability. Um, so, and and that's, that's just one example. But think about so many others. Um, what's a Christian's role in warfare? Boy, Christians have wrestled with that throughout the ages. Can I maybe get a little bit more into our family rooms? Um, how do you raise kids? Like, what, what's your policy on discipline with your children? Um, should you let your six-month-old sleep it out, cry it out or not? And I don't think we all kind of chuckle about that, but boy, when, when you're dealing with that, that's big stuff. You're like, I, but the Bible doesn't give you answers to those things. That's my point. It doesn't give you answers to that. It calls you to wisdom, and that leaves you in a place of dependency. I think that's the point. When you're forced into a situation where wisdom is requisite, in other words, I don't have a clear answer. It's not a clear path. It's messy. Like this situation here is messy. It's a messy situation. You get into the book of Acts and Corinthians, early church, messy situation. Having to wrestle with complex issues. When you get into that moment, this is where I think James pushes you. When you ask God for wisdom, He will give it. But what's the backside of that? The backside of that is the recognition that you have to ask for it. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. It's not, it's not just the best resources of your own mental skills or your own life skills to navigate complex personal dynamics. And some of you are really good at that and some of you aren't, right? Um, but the point is that's not the kind of call to biblical wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible comes from above. James, at the end of James chapter 3, says the wisdom from below, it, it works itself out in all kinds of division and disorder. The, the devil has a heyday when there's division and disorder. But the wisdom that comes from above, it's peaceable, it's pure. It reflects the kind of order and care that we know that God desires for his people. And we are, I feel this right now, I'm sure you all do too, in, in a position where we need wisdom. And it's not necessarily going to come from turning inward. It's going to come from open hands upward saying, we need you to help. What did Esther say? We need to pray and fast for three days. <laughs> you pray and fast for three days. Here's our plan. Now let's go execute it and see the Lord do his work. So I think there's something very powerful about the nature of wisdom um, in the Christian life. And the last thing, um, oh boy, our time went. And the last thing is a, is, a, is, a, is a recognition of God's providence. This is the force of the book. Um, you, you know what? It's, there's, a, there's a literary device, Jim, you'll know this. This literary device called... Um, Metalipsis. How's that for your word of the day? You can use it around the lunch table today. Um, Metalipsis is, is, a, is a literary device where the absence of saying something actually makes it louder. Uh, so, for example, you know, if you if you say, "If I see that dog one more time, I'm going to kick the out of it." If I that's an act of metalipsis. Right, and all of you said bad words. That's not good in church, by the way. I know, I know what you're thinking, um, but I'm sorry. But 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 by the absence of it, it becomes even more pronounced. The absence of God's name in the Book of Esther is an act, I think, of intentional metalipsis. 
The fact that God's name is not mentioned actually makes his presence all the louder. Um, And I think we know that that's how we live in the reality of providence. Creaturely human affairs. Decision making in the moment. Thinking through, discerning, praying where we're at. Knowing that God is working his will out. Pray and fast. He's working his will out. And he uses secondary causes like you and me to execute that will. He's he's extending his own will through the craftiness and the wisdom and the shrewdness of Queen Esther to not just barge into the king, but to have not just one banquet, but two banquets to set up the intensity of the moment so that when she finally unveils what the problem is, the king is worked into a corner and he's going to do nothing other than protect her and the people. There's wisdom there. So you have the wisdom of her actions, kind of the technical term here is concursus, concurring with the will of God, primarily working out his own providential ends and aims. Um, God's providence does not, in the sense of our understanding of it, doesn't always sit in the front seat of our car. Rarely does it. This is the hard thing about Christian faith. Rarely does it sit in the front seat of our car so that we can look at it and say, oh yeah, I see that one, two, three led to four. Um, that, by the way, more often than not, is only seen in retrospect in the rearview mirror. Rarely is that seen out the front windshield. And this is why Christians in complex moments are called on to seek the Lord, um, call, cry out for wisdom, live into the fear of Him, and then seek to live shrewdly and wisely in the moment so that He can work out His purposes toward his own end. So Lord, thank you for a book like Esther. Kind of remarkable, really, in so many ways. Um, This woman that appears onto the scene kind of out of nowhere and becomes the instrument by which you preserve your people in the whole Persian Empire. Model for us of Lady Wisdom. Lord, can I pray this now for myself and for those who are here for our church? We lack wisdom. We, We need you, O Lord, to open our minds and our hearts, to give us creativity and shrewdness in our moment for all of the things that we're trying to navigate, whether it's in our church, whether it's in our families, in our community, thinking through our world, our global moment. Father, we need wisdom. We need humility. And in the middle of it all, Lord, mark us as people who fear you, and in fearing you and living into the reality of your being and your presence, let that as well release us from the tyranny of having to work it all out on our own. Help us to trust that you will do your good work and you will bring your purposes to bear in your own providential timing. So give us wisdom, we pray, and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.